Welcome back to One Step, where we talk about the small steps in the process of finding our truth. We explore life's deepest questions around family, careers, relationships, money, and creativity while also celebrating the small victories. We're breaking down the wall between who we think we should be and who we really are. This is a reminder to ourselves that change doesn't happen overnight. It happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and I've spent the last decade sharing my life and personal growth on the internet. Now, life as we know it has changed drastically in the last week, and I'm looking for ways to explore and navigate this new reality. As a little side note here, the audio may sound different today, and that's because we are recording remotely, aka I am in my closet right now. (laughs) Yep, that's what's happening, and I'm a little sweaty too, but here I am. So we've adjusted our schedule and content in response to the current cultural climate. And normally we aren't a podcast that chases the news, but because of the global impact of COVID-19, we are making an exception here. And since we've made shifts in our previously recorded content, episodes will be going up in a slightly different order than we had planned. And because of all of these changes and shifts that we are making, we had also made some creative changes as well, but you are going to be experiencing those creative changes in this episode. And so I wanted to kind of give you a little background on that. So from now on, you will be hearing the same two questions about money at the beginning of every interview. This is for financial transparency to help provide a foundation of context around the person I'm speaking to. As we learned in season one, money is often left out of the quote unquote success stories. So we are aiming to change that. This is a special impromptu episode we've put together and I hope it brings insight and illuminates tools for taking a step forward with your feelings. Today, I'm talking to Eva Hagberg, who is an author, consultant, podcaster, writer, yoga teacher, and trained architectural historian. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, BuzzFeed Reader, Wallpaper, Dwell, and more. Eva is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, How to Be Loved, and co-hosts the podcast, Recoup, a show about homebound life, living with absurdly serious medical problems, ongoing recuperation, and coping with uncertainty. Through this, Eva has become an expert at helping others face new norms during unsettling times. We also happen to be in the same book club, so that's how I know Eva. I'm so excited to have her here today. Here she is, Eva Hagberg. Hello, Eva. Hi, Ingrid. Thanks for being here. Oh my God, thanks for having me in my my own closet. I know, I'm in mine too. (laughs) This is delightful. I can see some of your clothing. It's great. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of a closet tour. I'm very proud of the adjacency of my rag and bone (laughs) leather pants and my Target tiger outfit. I think that that's really a great introduction to your listeners for my vibe. I love the picture that's being painted for everyone right now. (laughs) All right, so let's get into this. First step, how would you describe your relationship with money growing up? So I have this vivid memory of going into my kitchen, which was a very nice kitchen, recently renovated in my Victorian house in Edmonton, Canada, and asking my stepdad if we were rich. And he said, don't ever ask a question like that again. 
And also, yes. And so my relationship with money is one that is steeped in shame and confusion um, and also profound material comfort. So I think now we weren't like rich, rich, rich. But growing up, I never had the slightest concern that there'd be food on the table. We went on vacations to Europe every year. I remember we had my mom drove like a pretty old Subaru and I was complaining that my, you know, my friends had cooler cars. And she was like, yeah, you get to go to Europe every year. You know, we prioritize. But there was a level of material comfort that meant that we could choose between a vacation in Europe or a nice car. We weren't choosing between paying the gas bill and paying the electricity bill. It was pretty easy street for me, I have to say. And what is your relationship with money like now? Oh, Ingrid, it is a nightmare. I was just on the phone with American Express trying to work out some sort of payment plan deal. I'm in so much debt and I blame my divorce, but honestly, I was in debt before I started getting divorced. My father once said something about money that I think has colored my attitude, which is like, what is money? We don't have any anyway, even though we always had enough. And so I've always grown up with this idea or not grown up with, but in adulthood adopted this idea that money is sort of fictional, but there's always going to be enough. And so even though I'm $65,000 in debt, I'm not worried about it because of how I grew up, even though objectively, I think I should be worried about it, especially now. But I also, I mean, I wrote this essay that I sent to you for BuzzFeed that was about why I lie about money. I mean, I have a really hard time looking directly at money and my friend Jason's going to live with me. And he was like, I think we should really do a pretty thorough financial inventory and get clear, like as a household, what are our assets? And I was like, ah, I don't want to. And he said, I understand it's taken a global pandemic for you to be willing to look clearly at your finances. So it's a mess. It's a hot mess. But I, I mean, I make a lot of money. Like I know how to make a lot of money. So I wonder what's going to happen now, though, because I think that my industry, my money making industry is like high end residential architecture, public relations. I, I don't know that that's going to survive the coming economic apocalypse. Yeah, it seems like that's not really like top level <laughs> priority right now. But it also is interesting that this moment, I think, for a lot of us is making us just think about money maybe more or differently than we were previously, just kind of having heightened awareness and feelings around money. And I loved that article that you sent me. And I really related to that. I really related to the feeling of using lying in order to hide myself and to do it on my own terms. And I really feel like for me, money was like, it's still very much something that I think I'll always be in process with, but it really felt like the last big frontier for me. Like, okay, this is the last big thing that I am really just trying not to look at. But that was a great piece. I loved it. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. It's like I've looked at my addiction to drugs. I've looked at my addiction to alcohol. I've looked at my addiction to men. I'm, you know, fine with my temporary addiction to sugar. Um, but money really feels like, oh, that might be the heart of everything. And I think the way that I grew up being really comfortable but never talking about it and being immediately shamed when I tried to ask about it, you know, I think I was 10 or 11 and I really just wanted to know, really, I think, instituted this the sense. And also as adults, I mean, we don't talk about how much we make. I think recently we've started to, you know, people are interested in unionizing and salary transparency and stuff like that. But there's definitely this cultural sense of like, you can talk about your sex life, but you can't talk about your salary. 
Yeah. Totally. I want to change that. I do too. And I've even noticed that people who work in some kind of financial industry can even be uncomfortable talking about money in their personal lives. So during the day, you know, they're working with money all the time, but when it comes to themselves personally and in their interpersonal relationships, they don't want to disclose as much. And I find that to be really interesting. That is fascinating. That's like a therapist who never wants to talk about feelings. Yeah. So I feel like we all have something that we can work on. Um, I feel like it's a frontier that everyone can explore because we've all kind of grown up in this broader culture that's told us it's not polite to talk about money. And I grew up um, not in poverty, but in circumstances where we didn't have extra money to go on vacations. And I remember asking my mom about money and she didn't want to talk about it. It was kind of like the same response, like a a shutdown. Because I think I had asked her, how much money do you make at work? As like a little kid, just wanting to know. And she was like, you never ask people that question. So this is fascinating because we're in completely different countries, right? I grew up in Canada and sounds like slightly different economic backgrounds, but that sense of shame is so pervasive Mm -hmm. and shutting us down instead of saying like, not everybody likes to talk about it, but let me tell you so that you have an understanding of what it takes to pay. I mean, I'm 37 and I still don't really understand how much money somebody needs. Like, I really just don't know because I don't think I was given basic literacy in a way, even though my parents tried to teach me a lot about like mortgage interest rates and stocks. But I really don't know if I need $3,000 a month or $20,000 a month to have a nice life. I really don't know. What's been sort of great is in adulthood, I've had so many different income levels. I've been so broke that I can't afford, you know, I can either buy like 12 eggs or six granola bars for a week. And then I've had so much money that I have to hire people to basically reduce my tax burden and do complicated things and sort of, you know, act like I'm in the 1%, even though I'm definitely not. And so seeing all those sides, and I think now I'm realizing that I'm heading back probably into a time of economic, I don't want to say scarcity, but a little bit less than I had before. And realizing that it's just going to be a little bit of a roller coaster forever. Somebody said once, like, money is not a moral issue. And that helped me so much because when I was broke, I kept thinking it was my fault. The 2008 recession, I really thought was happening only to me, like that I was running out of money because I was doing a bad job. And now I don't feel like that. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I feel like there's definitely this feeling of morality when it comes to your personal financial circumstances, especially when it comes to debt. I think we view people with debt usually in a negative way, but then it's interesting because it's like there are some kinds of debt that are seen as admirable, and then there's other kinds of debt that's seen as bad. And I think that that is really interesting. Like we're trying to categorize debt by morality and then placing that onto people. You're so right. And it makes me think about, there was this year where I was really sick and I didn't really know what was going on. And I ended up living in a tent in Sedona and just paying literally $20,000 for colonics and random vitamin IVs and saunas and all sorts of things. And 
supplements and doctor's visits and holistic practitioner's visits. And it just, I came home and I talked to a friend of mine and I was like, I spent $20,000. I have $20,000 of credit card debt. And like, what do I have to show for that? And she said, you have your life. And I realized like, I don't know which one of those treatments is the, but somehow I got better because I was willing to try everything. And it was such a beautiful reminder that if I had taken out a $300,000 mortgage, that would have been seen as responsible. I'm finally an adult. I own a home, but I spend $20,000 on my life. And people are like, well, that's a, that's a lot of consumer debt. And it was healing too. Mm -hmm. I I don't think buying a home would have been healing for you in that same way. The opposite. No. Speaking of the world right now and what we're going through. I was on Twitter yesterday and I was looking at one of your recent tweets and I really loved it a lot. It is, I see so many articles about working from home, but I think an equally useful one right now would be feeling from home. Editors, I will write this for you. And I definitely read that in your voice since I know you and I was like (laughs) laughing to myself, but also thinking this is so good and just so on point with at least what I'm seeing on the internet right now in terms of content and feeling from home is something that you're really familiar with. So can you tell us about your experience? Yes. Also, I want to say editors, I'm still available to write that for you. Um, So seven years ago, I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. I was very obsessed with two things, which were my romantic relationship and what my professors thought of me. These were like the biggest concerns I could ever think of ever having. I was maxed out. And I was having a fight with my partner, and I felt this blackness sort of rise into my eyes. And I thought, okay, I'm just having a panic attack or I'm overwhelmed or something. And I ended up fainting. And a couple days later, I went to the hospital and I was admitted for a week and went through all sorts of tests and was eventually diagnosed with depression. And I was like, well, that's weird because I would 100% accept a diagnosis of anxiety, but I actually feel like my life is awesome. It's going to be awesome. I'm so excited to see what happens next. Like I didn't sort of have the hallmarks of depression. And I really pushed for a brain MRI because a friend of mine's dad is a neurosurgeon. They were like, ah, I don't know. seems seems not useful. But I got one and it turned out that I had had a cyst or a tumor, they weren't sure, that had hemorrhaged in the middle of my brain. So overnight, I went from being really concerned about my relationship, really concerned about what people thought of me, to preparing to get a brain biopsy and being pretty sure, based on what my doctors were saying, that I was going to be diagnosed with this really rare brain cancer. So I was 31, and I was just like, what has happened to my life? I was pretty bedridden until the surgery. And then after the surgery, I was pretty bedridden for around six weeks, and then had a year of really intense complications. Eight months after I had brain surgery, I had heart surgery for something totally unrelated and again had a long recovery where I I literally had to lie down for a week. I kept thinking, okay, well, this is going to end. Like this situation is absurd, but it's going to get better. And everybody was saying to me, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to get through this. One day you'll you'll look back on this and, you you know, you're going to get back to normal life, back to normal life, back to normal life. That's a phrase that I keep hearing lately. And I didn't get back to normal life until pretty much this year. And I'm actually now recovering from my seventh surgery, this time for stage four endometriosis. I had three other abdominal surgeries along the way. And then I had that stint in Sedona. And so I spent so much time at home. I spent so much time alone. 
And I spent so much time wishing that my life could get back to what it had been and really feeling like I was in the wrong place and I wasn't living my life. And then I had this moment two years into all of this. So between 2013 and 2015, I was really fighting it. I was just in a state of constant resistance, constant denial. I kept trying to like come back. I'm making air quotes, like come back to my life. And I just couldn't. I wasn't strong enough. In 2015, I ended up going to the desert and I had this kind of full surrender. I had this moment where I was walking along a path and I kept thinking, I'm not supposed to be here. This is wrong. This is a mistake. And then I had this moment where I was like, wait, what if this is my life? What if my life right now is supposed to be me on this beautiful path in this beautiful place? I looked at the sky as if for the first time, I looked at these incredible mesas and these beautiful rocks and kind of had a spiritual awakening. And I thought, if I just surrender, maybe I'll feel better. And I did. And I just thought, okay, I'm somebody who used to be really ambitious and live in New York. And now I live in Sedona and I do a lot of saunas and see a lot of psychics. And I ended up making art out of that experience. But at the time, I had no idea that I would. You know, I wasn't like, oh, this is going to be a, a great book deal in, in three years. You know, I just was really, really surrendering. So I really learned how to have a deeply rich and meaningful life from my home. And I learned how to have a deeply rich and meaningful social life when I wasn't able to see my friends. And I think most importantly, I learned how to detach from all of my expectations and all of my plans and just have this approach that's like every day that I'm alive is part of my life. And so what I'm seeing now and what I was addressing with that tweet is this sort of obsession with replicating life exactly as it was before the pandemic hit. And so we can't go to the office, but we're going to replicate the office and we're going to obsess with like getting back to normal life. And for me, having these massive ruptures in my life produced incredible healing and self-reflection and faith. And I mean, that debt essay, I would never have had the courage to write something like that if I hadn't fully surrendered my career already and gone through this experience of being like, yeah, maybe maybe this is the last thing I'm ever going to write, but that's okay. I loved writing it. So I feel sort of uniquely emotionally resourced for this moment because I can see people's attachment because I had it. I mean, I just remember thinking this isn't my life. This isn't my life. This is not happening. And then realizing that it was happening was so freeing. I just see the sort of manic energy. You know, it's like 20 crafts you can do at home. Rearrange your sock drawer. And I'm like, what would happen if we all just paused and took a breath and like put our hands on our hearts and we're like, oh, fuck, I'm so scared, mm. you know, or like, I don't know what's going to happen. And that's really scary. And I've never felt like this before because at 31, I had never not believed that I knew what was about to happen. And since then, since 2015, when I really surrendered, every day I'm like, I have no idea what's supposed to happen with my life. My boyfriend had a dream last night that I died and he was really shaken up about it. And I was like, I'm going to. Yeah. I don't know when. And I live with that every day because I did almost die. I mean, I had a complication after brain surgery and I almost died and I came really, really, really close. And I remember that moment of almost dying. And so I don't want to die because I love being alive. I, I love my life. I haven't been outside in a week. It's okay. But I'm also not so attached. And I mean, I, I want everybody to feel the way that I feel, I guess. But I think being more sort of generous is like, I just, I, I just wonder what would happen if we got to pause. Yeah. And when I was listening to your podcast, Recoup, what really was sinking in for me was that need that you were talking about to be productive at home. And yeah, there's like, you know, funny content online of like 
like Erica was telling me about someone like standing in their bathroom and replicating being on the subway and like holding on to like a pole. And like, that's really funny and it can bring joy. But I think this really resonated with me because I relate to that feeling of a needing to be productive sometimes. And what's interesting is that I think a lot of us, myself included, have just assumed for a long time that being productive is a good thing. And the more productivity you can have, the better. But you're questioning that. And I really am interested in that questioning. What do you think is underneath this productivity contagion that is really, I feel like, all over right now, especially on the internet? Like if we were to lift up the hood, what would be there? I mean, I think that's such a good question. And I think American cultural historians would have a more informed answer. I mean, I think it is a universe, not a universally American thing, but I think it's a specifically American thing. And I think a lot of it is tied to religion. This is all my guesses. I'm not a historian of this kind of American culture, though I am a historian. But there is this sense of Protestant, Calvinist, you work now, you don't ask for anything. And the reward is in the satisfaction of a job well done. My family is very waspy and self-denial sort of runs through. You know, my mother, my grandmother have contests over who can eat less dessert, you know, who can have a smaller slice of cake. It's this idea of not wanting rewards, of not wanting to be indulgent, of wanting of not wanting to be lazy. And I think it it's it's because as a culture, we're so afraid of our feelings. As much as I see on Instagram people saying like, let, you know, there, there is sort of the counter voice of let's slow down and let's feel. But I think the overwhelming tide is like, do not wallow in the pain. And I think it's because the pain feels so great. I mean, there's such a history of trauma in American culture. I just think we don't know how to talk and we don't know how to feel. And so I think that the productivity culture is we all also want to demonstrate to each other that we're not sad and we're not scared. And it's it's sort of like the first person to fold, you know maybe people will go with them or maybe not. And like everybody doesn't know what's going to happen right now, but they keep wanting to reassure each other, like everything is going to be normal again. And I just don't know that after a trauma like this, things are going to be normal. And as a country, I think we can have post-traumatic growth, you know, which is a, which is something that's been documented among trauma survivors. But I think only if we're willing to really look at what's happening and feel our feelings and talk about them. How do you navigate feelings of fear and sadness? I know for myself, there is a level of fear around really looking under that hood. I know some stuff that is like potentially there. And I'm like, oh, do I really want to like go there? And it just feels easier to like shut the hood and like go back to like watering my plants or something. Um, so how do you get to that space. So I think it I think it feels easier in the short term, but it's ultimately the more we shove down, the more for me comes out sideways. I mean, I've been working with the same therapist for 9 years. Her name is Rachel Kaplan. She has really taught me that the fear of the feeling is always worse than the feeling itself. Whenever I feel really distracted or anxious or annoyed, I know by now that there's grief underneath. And so I try to slow down and then produce some sort of trigger for the sadness. Um, I mean, a really recent example is I found out a couple of days ago that my grandmother is dying. And 
she's old and she wants to die and it's not from coronavirus. I, I didn't really feel anything when I first found out and was more concerned for my mom. And then I decided to write my grandmother an email and she's very, she's very waspy. So it wasn't going to be like, you know, I love you so much, but I just started writing things that I've learned from her and, and I could feel I started crying. And my first impulse was to stop writing the letter and get on TikTok or get on Twitter. And then I just thought, Eva, this is such a gift because if I feel it now, it's not going to come out sideways later. So I just wrote this email and then just kept crying my way through it. I mean, there are different strategies, but invariably slowing down and then just very gently inviting the feeling in is what has worked. And also expressing anger sometimes too. You know, another thing that my therapist has taught me is like throwing anger parties where I just like beat the bed or I throw pillows around and, and always like that's the first layer for me. So I'll feel the anger and then I'll feel the sadness underneath. Mm-hmm. But I promise you like, well, I don't want to promise you anything, but I have opened the hood on things that I thought would truly kill me. And I can't do it all at once. I mean, something else I learned from a teacher was about titrating right? So it's like we don't open the hood and look at it all at once and stare at it. It's like we open the hood just at, just to the level of tolerance and then we close it again. And one of the things that I learned being really sick where, you know, my fear of dying was one of these things that I didn't want to feel. And it would like, you know, the hood would blow open and I would just be overwhelmed and then I would try and close it and I couldn't. And then I just started letting it out little by little. And that really worked. So it's like trusting your body's innate ability to hold things and The last thing I'll say is I've learned that like my body lets me know things when I'm strong enough to handle them. And so if I suddenly know something or I remember something or I feel something, it's because I'm strong enough to deal with it. I've totally felt that too, especially with things that I have no memories around until all of a sudden I have a memory around this thing. And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't thought about this since this happened. And I've felt that exact same way too. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is coming up because I'm ready to start processing this now. And I love that advice that you're giving. And what came up for me was thinking about my teen self as a teenager. I was so much freer with my emotions and I was quicker to get angry, especially at my parents or like some adult that was annoying me. I was so free with my tears and would just cry over everything and anything that made me feel like I wanted to cry. That's just kind of giving me some ideas in terms of how to process things and also being able to have an anchor point like, oh, I've done this. I've been here. And I feel like I can use my teen self and that like teen angst that I felt as a tool today to just let myself lie on the floor and listen to music. Teen Ingrid has so much wisdom, right? And like, that's another tool that I use is getting in touch with like teen Eva. I I should get in touch with teen Ingrid. That sounds amazing. (laughs) We should definitely have like a teen Ingrid, teen Eva party. Yeah. Um, Although I was kind of a nightmare. But yeah, getting in touch with those like younger selves because there there is such a freedom. And I, I miss that, the just intensity right? Because it feels like the intensity lessens as we get older. But I think that's just the culture telling us that intense feelings are unbecoming. Yeah. But I mean, sometimes I love crying in public just so people can see it's okay to cry in public. Yeah. You know, emotions are beautiful. We need to cry for our lung health. Literally, it helps increase breathing capacity. Like there are physiological reasons that crying is deeply beneficial to the organism. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, I know what I'm Googling afterward. <laughs> Not to be productive. <laughs> just, just for enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I have wondered too, like going back to the working from home that's happening just on a larger scale now. I'm someone who's worked from home for the last decade. And I've noticed that it's definitely something that people look down on and they don't take it seriously some places they've used the excuse of, oh, we don't allow people to work from home. And that pushes large groups of people out of potential new employees. And so I'm wondering now that more people are working from home, more companies are working from home. Do you think this will change the landscape of working from home in the future? Because I feel like it was something that people were always like, oh, that's impossible. Like we can't make this happen. And now many places are figuring out how to make it work. I mean, I really hope so. Because I also have been working from home for my entire career, which is by now 17 years long. But working from home has been really denigrated and meeting in person has really been valued. I mean, I this consulting company that I have, I have clients who insist on meeting in person. And they believe that there's some magical alchemy that happens when two people are in a room together. And to a certain extent, I believe that. I think some meetings are good to have in person. Like the first time you meet with somebody that you're going to interact with, great. Although my co-host on the podcast, we've never met in person and we have a super great vibe. So a lot of disability activists right now are saying, you know, we've been asking for these accommodations for years and have been told that it's not possible and it's a sign of laziness and it doesn't work and you, you can't do the same kind of work. And suddenly when able-bodied people need it, oh yeah, no, it's totally fine. So I hope that a combination of that activism being heard and people realizing how much time is wasted by going to the office. I mean, I work really, really hard for maybe two or three hours a day. I often think that I'm just skating by but I remember once or twice being commissioned to do a project that required me to go into the office and nobody was doing any work. They were opening a file and then walking to the coffee machine. And I mean, everybody was just like, I don't want to say wasting time. They were spending time socializing, which is a valuable thing. But I realized that the two to three hours of work that I do every day are utterly focused and completely concentrated. And I think that's how much work people do at offices, but they just sit there for eight hours to, again, demonstrate productivity, demonstrate commitment to improving the company's bottom line or whatever. I think this experience is showing people that a lot of values that we have held just as absolutely true, like it is better to meet in person and teamwork can only happen in person and collaboration is essential. Those are being really undone as are large scale economic beliefs, right? I mean, people are like, well, we could never pay for any sort of universal basic income. Oh, look, we just found $1,200 to send to everybody. This is also part of, I love that you brought this up because it's part of my larger resistance to this idea that we're waiting out this crisis and then things will get back to normal. I'm like, normal kind of sucked. Like normal was actually not great for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of gig workers, a lot of freelance workers who suddenly now were like, oh my God, the Uber Eats delivery drivers are going to literally be keeping us alive. And so I feel like this is such an opportunity for a, like a massive set of experiments and what actually is is possible and what sort of performance we actually have been valuing over dedication to work. One of the things that I've always set up with with anybody that I work with is like I should be paid on results, not on time or really abstract measures of productivity like how many times we get on the phone per week. You know, I have one client I was like I'll get on the phone with you but 
I don't remember anything that anybody says, and I hate these phone calls, so they're going to be terrible for both of us, or you can just let me get on with my work, and you will see that the results will be great. Yeah. I could be a little gentler about that, but... Oh my gosh. But I mean, I feel like you expressed so many feelings that I have had. Like I do enjoy phone calls when I feel like there is something genuinely happening that is helpful and there's like a connection that's helpful. But a lot of times I feel like this definitely just could have been an email. I really want that mug that says like just survived another conference call that could have been an email because those happen all the time. And luckily it's not a regular part of my work life, but I know that it is an experience for people on a daily basis in their offices. Mm -hmm. And I encounter it every now and then. And I'm like, this is so frustrating. I could be doing something else that's not this that would feel so much better. Exactly. And my hope is that people are, it's like, we're going to get a critical mass of people saying, wait, this is a really silly waste of time. And then maybe the culture around work can change. I mean, I read this horrifying thing today, the Wall Street Journal sent out an email to their employees saying like, you need to be on Slack and you need to respond immediately and answer every phone call. And basically, like I said, just really replicate the sort of intensity of being in the newsroom and, and have, being physically available with your body to whoever wants access to that in your mind. And I just think, God, we have such an amazing opportunity that you're missing, which is to see if we're really focused and we're not distracted and we're working from home, what could we do left to our own devices? Yeah. We could do so much more. Yeah, I really do think that there is so much opportunity and that trying to hold on to what's quote unquote normal, I think is just holding on to something that is ready to clearly go. Right. Um, and we're ready to expand into something larger. And I think one thing that is new for many people is this spending a lot of time physically alone. Um, And this is something that I think I know just talking to my friends, like we're all having our own experiences around it. But I do think that there is an opportunity in this moment as well. And so how have you navigated spending a lot of time physically alone while still maintaining social connection? Because I think that is a big concern for many people right now. Like how, how do I do this? Yeah. So there was a great meme that said before the pandemic, what people wanted to do, and it was everybody on their devices inside watching Netflix. And then it was like after the pandemic, everybody's in the park in groups, right? There is definitely a grass is greener. I mean, it's been like such a meme to cancel plans and be relieved about it before the pandemic. And now everybody's like, I long for the touch of my friends, you know? All right. Okay. So true. (laughs) Right? Yeah. We were all delighted when plans got canceled and now we're devastated. I mean, I think this sort of goes back to the feeling thing, right? I think it's a lot of people, before I get to like the solution, it's like, what is actually the nature of the problem? Like, what is the problem about being alone? And I think for extroverts, I fully understand. I have a friend who's so extroverted that she had the choice between staying with somebody she didn't know that well for a month or staying alone. And she asked my advice and I was like, oh, I think you will actually not survive mentally if you are alone for a month. Like you're actually somebody that that truly is wired in such a way that like you cannot tolerate being alone. So I think you should be with this person. And for her, I think that that stems from childhood experiences. And so it's like before we get to 
how do I keep in touch with people? It's like, why do I want to keep in touch with people? I have a reflexive need to share whatever happens to me. So I'll get a piece of information and I'll immediately pick up my phone to text somebody. And that's a way of keeping in touch. And what I've tried to learn is that actually this is something that I am resource enough to absorb on my own. I don't immediately need to socialize about it. I don't immediately need to put it on Twitter, even though I always want to. Um, and so sort of before getting to like how to keep in touch, it's like, why is being alone so intolerable? And maybe is part of it intolerable because it's suddenly now so popular to talk about how intolerable it is. And if it's a childhood thing, finding some help with that childhood thing. You know, I was ghosted uh, about a year ago by somebody that I'd hooked up with. And I found it absolutely intolerable. I mean, my entire nervous system was like, I was out of my mind for two weeks. And people were like, dude, I, why can't you let this go? And I was like sort of manic with it in the same way that people are obsessed and manic about keeping up their social connections. And I finally realized that I had sent him a text and he had not responded. And that had reminded me of trying to reach my father when I was very, very young and my father not coming to visit. And it was that feeling. And so I was reacting as though I were two or three years old and being abandoned by a caregiver. Mm -hmm. And once I got clarity with that, I was able to see that this person was this like very nice guy who acted in a way that I didn't love, you know, but it had nothing to do with me. And so it's like just taking that time to get a little bit clear, you know, are you triggered in this moment? Is there a car rolling up and you see that there's a hood and you don't want to open it, you know, so you're trying to do anything to avoid it and like, shit, you're alone and you have no distractions. And then I think once that stuff is taken care of, I mean, because I've been working from home for so long, I'm used to being alone for like at least nine to 24 hours a day. So I sort of have a head start. And then having been really sick and facing these limitations like limitations don't bother me anymore because I've I've experienced them. Like I couldn't go outside and hang out with my friends for months. And so I just have practice. And so also thinking of this time as like strengthening strengthening a muscle that a lot of people are going to need later. Like a lot of us that survived the coronavirus are going to get cancer or have heart attacks or have families with cancer or families with heart attacks or diabetes or you know, autoimmune conditions. And it's like, it's like physical fragility will come for all of us. And this is an opportunity for those of us who've only ever been fully healthy and fully able-bodied to start developing strategies. And so instead of thinking like, oh God, I can't wait until this is over. Like I will somehow tolerate this horror, you know, and every day just feeling like torture. It's like, ooh, I'm strengthening a muscle that I'm going to need later. And that requires acknowledging that we're all going to die and we're all going to get sick at some point. And that's another thing that Americans do not want to do. Um, and I'm always like the bummer at the party who's like, no, we're all going to die. But it's important to it's important for me to always keep that in the back of my mind so that I don't get so attached to these things. So I guess it's like, yeah, it's a combination of like, what is where does the fear come from? And then just like low key ways of staying connected, you know, being on FaceTime while you're both working and not because I think there's a lot of pressure for people to be like, get on FaceTime and now let's talk and really, you know, make continuous eye contact. And, and no, you can just be on FaceTime and have each other in the top right corner of your computer screen while you work and then be like, oh, here, I found a funny tweet. Yeah, yeah, I actually am really excited about the opportunity for creativity to connect with people in different ways. I set a date with my friend 
um, for this weekend and we're going to have a wine date with each other. And I also want to encourage her to wear her Harry Potter house sweatshirt. So we have, we're in different houses, but we have- What are you? I'm a Ravenclaw. (gasps) She's a Slytherin, but we have like the same- sweatshirt Mm -hmm. just for our houses and so I really want to make this happen but I also think that it's this fun creative opportunity to just hang out in a different way and I feel like this is definitely strengthening a different kind of muscle it's encouraging me to explore a different tool because before this I wasn't reaching out to my friends as much like she's across the country in LA and I'm like we've been apart for a while physically apart and now I'm like really putting in this effort and I'm like oh this could continue this could keep going and it also feels good as an introvert too she and I are both introverts and I'm like this is deep down one of our ideal scenarios (laughs) I know (laughs) True introverts are, I think, really happy right now. And I'm realizing that I am actually a true introvert. I like seeing people in person, but getting to explore this different way of Mm -hmm. being at home and still having connection is really interesting to me. I'm getting a lot out of it, even though there have been challenges as well. But it's also like you're adding to your social toolkit. Right. You're not, this is not a permanent replacement. Like, this is not going to last forever. But how amazing that once the pandemic is over, you might, just like you said, you might be motivated to keep doing this with your friend. We're just expanding the ways in which we connect. And that's what being so sick taught me is like, oh, there's so many ways to be friends with somebody. Yeah. And I'm meeting new people through this Mm -hmm. experience too. Like, I've been on group Zoom calls and there have been like new people in these smaller groups that I've never met in person before. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool that I'm also making new connections through this as well, because that was one thing that I was not expecting at all was a new connection being made. What do you do when homebound life feels heavy for you? Mm. I do something physical. So the other day, I started getting a little bit kind of whacked out. And I have outside space, which I'm incredibly fortunate to have. And so I went onto my patio, and then I was like, oh, I still feel a little trapped. So I got onto my couch outside, and I still felt a little trapped. So I climbed onto the armchair of the outdoor furniture so that I could just see over Brooklyn. And I just stood there, and I stared at the sky, and I stared at the buildings, and I just thought, okay, I'm actually free in a way. For the last year, I have felt so trapped in my marriage because I cannot get divorced. I'm trying to divorce somebody who just does not want to get divorced. And what I, the only solution for that has been physical motions, like literally spreading my arms out and feeling like I have room around me. I have space around me. For people that can't go outside that don't have outdoor space, it's like finding the most open space in your apartment and just like doing a physical motion, you know, stretching the sort of shoulder muscle, that can have such a huge effect on my nervous system and reminding me that I'm not actually like in a cage. I'm not actually trapped, even though my brain is like, go outside, go outside, go outside, go outside. And then the other part of my brain is like, it's airborne, it's airborne, it's airborne, stay inside. That helps. And then also finding people that are able to sort of have a little bit of gallows humor, you know, like finding people that are kind of on my level. So if I'm feeling like overwhelmed or like I can't cope, I'll usually reach out to my friend Jackie Shea, who is this awesome 
wellness coach in LA and she's really great at sort of assessing where I'm at. And if I'm really hysterical, she'll take it really seriously. And then pretty quickly we'll, we'll start laughing, you know, and sort of like people that can find the humor in a situation and sort of make like really dark jokes. Yeah. I hope that's useful. Definitely. I love just that picture of looking out and being able to just see a little bit more and breathe a little bit more Mm -hmm. and realizing, oh, okay, like feeling that sense of freedom inside. And I think going back to watering my plants can fall into productivity, but it can also be this incredible feeling of connection to something that's living Um, that helps me to breathe a little bit more, to feel like connection to like dirt, especially living in a city. And I think for me, it goes back to what's the intention and the motivation behind the action, because I'm doing the exact same thing in both instances, but with productivity, I'm trying to avoid something and, you know, finding that space that spaciousness and that freedom, I'm looking for that place of inner peace inside of me. And so those are two completely different things. That reminds me, my friend woke up this, so I woke up this morning and I'm still recovering from the surgery. So I'm still pretty out of it. And he was like, all right, I'm going to go work on some music. And I'm really inspired by my friend who's painting. And I immediately was like, oh, I'm not enough. I'm just going to laze around and do nothing. And he said, no, you had surgery, rest, like you need to rest. And I started making tea. And then I just thought, I'm really in the mood to work on my novel. And then I just sat down and wrote 1400 words because I really wanted to. And that felt so different from thinking, well, I don't get to relax until I've worked today. And so I love that you're making this distinction between productivity and something creative because it can be the exact same action. But if it's done out of fear or premeditated resentment or anxiety or need to prove to your boss, you know, for people who have bosses and are working at home versus like, God, I'm really in the mood to just see what my characters are up to today. It's so different. It really is. And it feels different too, because I feel in one space, it feels like you're really like reaching and pulling and trying to like dig for something like out of avoidance. It just feels much more strenuous for me. And then In the other space, it feels just so much more free-flowing. And there's Mm -hmm. this relax into that space, which just feels profoundly different from the other place. You know, I think that right now, a lot of us are dealing with feelings of uncertainty. And a moment like this can really bring into focus how uncertain life just always is. And a lot of us have been taught that uncertainty is a bad thing because we're trying to create so much certainty in our lives on a daily basis. So do you think there is a way to reframe uncertainty and see it in a different light? Yeah. So I had this friend, Allison, who I wrote about, and she had two post-it notes on her kitchen. And one of them said, we don't know what's going to happen. And the second one said, we don't know what's going to happen. And she had two because by the time she'd read one, she'd forgotten it, right? She was already like, I need to figure out what's going to happen. Uncertainty is not only a mental tool. It's also just reality. I mean, we do not know what's going to happen ever. I've always thought that stable jobs are just as tenuous as freelance jobs because, you know, people will say, well, I could go on my own or I could get a really secure job. And I'm like, we've seen this week, nothing is secure. 
knowing that we live in uncertainty leads to incredible adaptability and it leads to sort of like you said before, it's like if we're reaching or grasping for a security that's outside of ourselves, in my experience, it, it, it has never been enough. Like I've never had enough money or enough things or enough furniture or a long enough lease to ever feel really secure. And what I had to learn when I was sick and I was driving all around the U.S. and I was living in Sedona and I was trying to figure out what to do is the security really had to be a sense of internal resource. And so now instead of thinking, okay, I know what's going to happen because I don't, I think I'm just going to trust that whatever happens, I'll have the resources that I need to handle it and to face it, right? Truly one day at a time. I mean, I'm really curious to see how many people are going to use this experience to start pursuing passions that they maybe would have wanted to before, but felt like, well, but I have this job and I should, you know, stick with a stable job and pay my mortgage. It's like, okay, if everybody has no money, if we're in a total recession, what are people going to want to do? And I remember when I thought I was going to die and then had almost died and come back, I felt like everything was this like second life that I got. And so I had this freedom. Where, where all these old rules and fears that I'd had, they just didn't apply anymore. And I remember thinking, okay, don't lose sight of this freedom. And of course, as time went on, I started getting obsessed with little things that didn't really matter as much. But I think we have such an opportunity now to really assess like what we need and what we think we need. And I think we need a lot less than we think we do. And use uncertainty as this like beautiful, mystical gift, you know, like instead of thinking, okay, well, at least I'll make X amount of money for the next 25 years and then I'll get to retire and go on this cruise that I always wanted to instead of delaying joy, delaying gratification. I think we can say, okay, if I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, if I don't know if I'm going to live, what would I do? And a lot of times it's not that extravagant. Like, you know, there's all these movies where somebody's given a year to live and they like, I don't know, take a round the world trip or something. But when I thought I was going to die, I just wanted to hang out with my friends. Like I just wanted to be home shooting the shit with my friends, laughing, eating candy. Like that was it. When I think now about potentially dying from coronavirus and I'm like, oh, well, I haven't done enough. I'm like, no, I really have. I've spent a lot of great time with my friends, you know? And so I see so many people trying to reassure each other by saying it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. And this will be over in X time or X time or X time. And I keep wanting to say, like, none of us knows, none of us knows, but we're all in this together. And what can happen if we just see, I don't know, it's sort of like with turning towards the unknown with an open heart and open arms yeah. and seeing what's there because there's so much, there's so many gifts there that we're going to miss otherwise. Yeah. And I also feel like there's, with that, there's this sense of grief that's happening. And I want to read you one of my favorite quotes from Cheryl Strayed. I'll never know, and neither will you, of the life you don't choose. We'll only know that whatever that sister life was, it was important and beautiful and not ours. It was the ghost ship that didn't carry us. There's nothing to do but salute it from the shore. And this is something that I've loved for years and I've always come back to, especially in moments where I'm feeling grief especially coming out of, you know, feelings of uncertainty. And even though right now we're not choosing COVID-19 into existence, it does feel like there is a collective sense of grief out of not living the life that we had 
planned for because I think so many of us had plans. We were like thinking into the future. There were all of these events that we've seen be canceled and the list just goes on and on and on. And I think pretty much every single person probably has their own version of what this grief looks like. And so I wonder what's your ghost ship and how do you deal with that grief? Mm. So mine is probably that I had this best friend in college who I was always very sure that I was like totally in love with. And I think my ghost ship is like, we would have gotten together and probably had some kids and lived in like a state not on the coast. And I would just be like a mom and be super into it. I don't know, have some sort of job as like a brand consultant. And I would be like, really glamorous also and just like know how to put makeup on I mean I see these sort of like professional women in New York and I'm like oh, man I, I could have lived that life and instead I'm like you know took my pants off because I was too hot in my closet like <laughs> you know like like this is just how it turned out but I love that quote too because I think I think you're right is we're all saying goodbye to the ships that we thought were ours and and we don't know what the other ship is going to look like but I think about that life a lot. I mean, I, I was thinking especially when I really realized that my marriage was over, which took a long time, I was thinking about how much I'd invested into being married. And I mean, I also thought I was going to just be married to this person and live a different life. And I was getting really like melancholic. Uh, so I guess I was feeling a little heavy. I was getting sort of like, just like really emo, you know? And I was like, yeah, just like, wow, the lives not lived, the paths not taken. And I think they're about just different people that I would have chosen to partner with. I mean, I think that's it, which again, just it's like the most meaningful things in my life have always been the people that I have loved and the people that have loved me. So the being the glamorous career woman is actually like, that's not really it. It's just like, if I had loved this person in a different way, what would my life have been like? Yeah. Um, but I decided a friend of mine has a great line about that where she says, I'm just going to die a little bit in love with this person. And there are like five people that I will die just a little bit in love with and sort of accepting that and being like, yeah, I, I'm not going to be with them in this lifetime. Mm. Okay. And just welcoming, you know, and, and carrying a little bit of that grief and that love, I think feels so much better for me than like regretting, you know, it's just incorporating. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I feel like dying a little bit in love with someone just shows the expansiveness and the capacity for love too. Mm -hmm. um, I love that. That's definitely something I'm going to be thinking about and feeling too, as I, I go through my own process of grief. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Oh, my pleasure. So what's a step in building a rich homebound life that no one is talking about right now? Pausing. Pausing before taking an action. Just pausing for 30 seconds before launching, like between one task and another one. And what is a small victory from your last week? I think laughing really, really, really hard with a friend of mine. Like getting on FaceTime and just like laughing and being like, we are so screwed and we have no idea what's going on. Accessing joy in this time, I think was, was a profound victory because the mood is very heavy. The mood is not about like, let's laugh about this. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely a victory. I feel the same way. I had a laughing victory too. And I was like, that is the first time I have deeply laughed during mm -hmm. all of this. And it was, 
profoundly mood shifting. It just felt like such a relief to just laugh. Something so simple. Right. And we're allowed to laugh and have pleasure and seek joy in this time. We don't have to just be like the more it's not it's not that like the more we suffer, the more seriously we'll take this and the better it will go. It's like we need to find joy. Mm, I love that. So where can everyone find you on the Internet? So they can find me at my website, evahagberg.com, but they should really find me on Twitter at Eva Hagberg, where I am very hype. Um, and then if you really want to see my plants and which leaves are growing, follow me on Instagram at Eva May Hagberg. Cool. And you have a podcast to recoup. Yes. And I have a book, uh, How to Be Loved, which just came out in paperback from Mariner Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Great. And I highly recommend the Twitter. And also, if there are any editors out there or people with connections to editors, please pick up the Feeling from Home piece. I want to read that (laughs) just selfishly out of my own need. Thank you so much, Eva, for being here. Thank you, Ingrid. Eva, thank you so much again for your beautiful insight. I just feel like the idea of dying a little bit in love is something that is going to be sitting with me for a long time. What a gift. And thank you to everyone who is listening. On the next episode, oh, this is a creative change that we also haven't discussed. Christina and I are going to be reflecting on this conversation that we had today. So that was something that we have also decided Christina and I will now be reflecting on episodes together. And we have some fun things planned for reflections. And we're really looking forward to just letting this creative process play out, letting the episodes change and evolve as they want to evolve. We love it when you guys get involved. So if you'd like to share your thoughts, you can email a voice note to us at onesteppodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the voice memos app or the voice record app to send us a voice note. And we'll be sharing those here on the podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to have you join our community. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast to stay up to date. Also, we wanted to let you know that we are working on putting together a virtual podcast club meeting. So even if you don't live in New York City, you will be able to join. And we're really excited about this. We will let you know on Instagram when we are planning to have these meetings. And I'm going to repeat this pro tip from other people who have been to podcast club meetings in person because I think this will be similar. Set your post notifications for One Step Podcast on Instagram to on so you can see when we post about the podcast club meetings. And we're thinking that because we will be doing these virtually, we'll be able to open it up to more people and definitely, you know, different cities as well. So we're thinking about it, we're working on it, and it should be coming very soon. Thank you so much to our producer, Christina Cleveland, our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen, and my closet for being my DIY studio today. Take care and we'll talk soon.